Welcome to the Real Self University podcast. I'm Eva Shea, your host and director of practice development at Real Self. My guest on the podcast today is Dr. James Murata, facial plastic surgeon from Long Island, New York. Welcome, Dr. Murata. Did I say your name right? You did, Eva. You did a great job. Perfect, perfect okay. pronunciation. Tell us a little bit about your practice. I'm a facial plastic surgeon, as you said. I've been in practice for 15 years. I started my practice in 2005 and really just kind of old school, hung a shingle, got a bank loan and started out with one administrative assistant from a plastic surgery practice that I had luckily had vacated the premises and I, I rented their space and just started by slowly but surely building my practice. I used to I had an operating room. I would sterilize my own instruments, wipe my own floors, and started with a couple friends and family members of my wife's coming in for treatments and built the practice. And now we're, you know, after 15 years, we're 23 employees and we built our own building with two operating room suites. And at some point we had some other physician associates, which we don't have at the moment, but you know, built quite a practice over the last 15 years. So a lot of hard work and a big, big change from there to here. It's pretty unusual to find a space like that right at the beginning and fall backwards into it. That was really lucky. Oh, I was very lucky. Yes, very lucky. In fact, my mother-in-law, basically, I was still in fellowship. She found the place and a pulmonologist had put down a deposit. She basically wrestled the check out of the landlord's hand <laughs> and said, no, you've got to give this to my son-in-law and gave him a bigger check. And that's the reason I was able to get that space, you know, which was great because it had an operating room and it had everything I needed. So I had an operating room in my own practice from day one, which was a really gutsy move on my part to do that because having the staff and the equipment to do that. But I, you know, honestly, it really paid off. So that was a, wow. a luck, bit of luck, you know, in my part. Your mother-in-law is a keeper, first of all. Oh, absolutely. Mother-in-law mm -hmm. fights for you. She's definitely a keeper. How long did you stay in that first space? We've been in our new building about six years now. So we were there a uh, good nine years. And then I, I always knew I wanted to own my own space because I felt that, you know, if I'm going to be in practice for another 25 years, that's an investment and you can build equity in a property. And instead of paying rent and going out the window, so I bought a a one and a half acre lot with a garden center that was basically a flat piece of property on a highly trafficked road with 50,000 cars going by a day. And I thought that would be good for signage, but you know, in a relatively private location. And we knocked the garden center down and then built the building from scratch six years ago. So that was another big leap in the practice. And uh, we built, you know, I have over 7,000 square feet. And I thought to myself, my God, I, there's no way I'm going to use all the space and the halls were echoing when we opened the practice and and then shortly within a year my entire staff was saying oh my god I, I can't believe that we're using every inch of this place and now we're looking at expanding the practice prior to obviously the, the current situation so we're going to build out the building or get a second location or that's still going to work just obviously delayed a little bit a wise person once said to me that healthy things grow and that's what I think of when you're describing what's happened over the last six years. Yeah. Or 15. I think that's a great saying. And, you know, another one I've heard in that vein was if you're not improving, you're getting worse. Mm -hmm. And I think we've always kind of run the practice with that philosophy that if we're not growing, we're not in a growth mindset, that, you know, stagnation is, is losing ground. So we've always pushed ourselves to kind of go to that next level of practice. 
Do you see a lot of brand recognition from the drive-by traffic? It seems like a lot of exposure that you're getting from being in that location. Yeah, I've had patients come in and just say, kind of in the beginning, well, I saw your sign or I've seen your sign multiple times. I drive here, I work here every day. And I think it's certainly a factor. I don't think it's the major factor. Marketing is so, especially these days with so many different venues, and I know in so much different ways to reach a consumer, that I think it's just obviously one small part of the, a big puzzle that, and a touch point that you can have with a patient, whether it's a drive-by in their car at 50 miles an hour, even if it's a glance at your name, your name is in their head. So I think it definitely is a, a valuable part of the practice. I'll tell you, I live on the edge of Austin, Texas. And when we go out of town, there's this random cool sculpting billboard on the side of the road right. with just a doctor's name on the bottom. And it's been there for years and years and years. Yeah. And I think he must be working because he's still doing it. It always makes me laugh because it's just so random. There's like a taxidermist and then a cool sculpting billboard and a, a beer garden, like a gun shop. It's just super strange. But he's he's in your head and you'll never forget him. And he's always in that location. That's right. that's, we have a local oculoplastic surgeon who uh, advertises at the movie theater. Mm-hmm. So every time you go to the movies, you're hearing this big belling voice. This is Dr. So-and-so of... Oculoplast, you know, and you cannot get that voice out of your head because every time you, walk, you go to the movie theater, it sticks in there. So yeah. if I ever needed something done, I might check him out. Now, it might not be such a good strategy these days because I don't think anyone can go to the movies quite yet. Yeah, true. Yeah, you might have to work on. Well, they're talking about drive-in theaters, so maybe he'll have to switch his advertising to there. It's the resurgence of the drive-in. That would be, I think, really cool. I agree. I'd go. I'm just so desperate to get out of the house now. I'd go just about anywhere. Oh, I would absolutely go. I was thinking about doing that for, you know, that was an idea that somebody said, that's a great kind of social distancing get together. I have a big movie screen. I blow it up, you know, and you put it in your driveway and have your friends park in your driveway when you watch a movie. That's so smart. You sound like a natural marketer. (laughs) (laughs) Put the screen up, but make sure you put an ad up. Of course, I'll show my logo. Absolutely. (laughs) My cool tone ad on my movie screen before we start the movie. Maybe that's a good... (laughs) Did you get a cool tone? (laughs) Yeah, we have a cool tone. Did you get it before or after people could actually have it? Yeah, we actually were up and running for a while with it, and people loved it. But yeah, then obviously... We have sculpture, which is uh, laser lipolysis, and then cool tone. And we were going to have a big event, and now that event's going to happen virtually. So, you know, that's one of the things is obviously adapting the current situation and not stopping your efforts to reach out and contact patients and to, to market to them and connect with them any way you can. So we're going to still go forward with that event, albeit virtually, until we're able to get back in the office. Have you had people signing up for that yet? Yes, actually a big response. As you all know, everybody's a captive audience now. So we've been doing actively an Instagram Live. We've been doing several webinars through the practice. People are signing up because people are really hungry to kind of get back to normal life and to maybe plan their procedure now. So offering all those kinds of you know, electronic means to, to stay in touch with people, I think, is, is a key to the practice going. And it's the only way, obviously, to keep your employees productive and keep your employees also mentally healthy and thinking about, okay, well, we are going back into practice and we are going to come back 
and turn this thing around and we are going to come back stronger and how do we build on the current situation in order to help us do that how do we leverage everything we can from, from the technology standpoint to help us to do that and obviously social media webinars and posts are, are key to that what are the other marketing things have you done to kind of pivot and stay connected that you might keep once you are open again well i think it's pretty obvious to everybody when you had no way to see patients at all that you had to jump on the telehealth train very quickly and we did that within a few days of this happening and we're offering virtual consultations and then we stepped up our ability in those virtual consultations not only to provide a good experience but to also provide virtual imaging that we can do to give that consultation a better so we had to switch from one company to another or actually take on a second company in order to be able to provide virtual imaging during those consultations so that was really key and telehealth i think will be a way of not only you know this thing's not going away we're going to be in the situation a lot longer than we thought you're going to have to social distance and limit the, the number of people that you can see in your practice I have seven exam rooms. The whole waiting room was packed and those seven exam rooms were full all the time with people waiting in the queue to get into that exam room. That kind of high volume, high turnover practice is not going to work. So you're going to need to leverage telehealth in order to be able to see those, perhaps those patients that you don't need to actually physically see in the office. You can reach out, do a follow-up for surgical procedure or non-surgical procedure via telehealth and not bring them into the office. So therefore, saving up you know, your office space and, and maintaining social distancing and still helping leverage your productivity. And I thought about, okay, well, when this thing is over, maybe follow-ups and things like that that do take up potential revenue-generating time and space could still continue in that vein via telehealth in order to leverage this capability that we've developed in this situation to help us in a situation where... God willing, one day COVID is a horrible memory. <laughs> I look forward to that day. <laughs> Me too. I'm sure all of us do at this point. How have you thought about the physical environment of the office and what changes are you making in there to kind of mitigate any risk or limit exposure to surfaces and things like that? I mean, we're actively developing a protocol adapted from a few position papers there is my specialty organization, the American Academy of Facial Plastic Surgery, in uh, coordination with ADA, American Dermatological Association, and several other specialty organizations put out kind of a position paper on how to conduct a practice again. And then the ASPS, American Society of Plastic Surgery, also put out a document on that. Of course, I'm distilling those two things. And there's American College of Surgeons, which I'm a member of. A fellow of the American College of Surgeons, they also have position papers. So I think as an individual practice, you need to, I've read all of them. I'm distilling down kind of from them what I think is the most practical measures that we can take in order to safeguard our patients. Because bottom line is you want that assurance as a patient when you're coming to the office that you're not going to be taking undue risk for an elective procedure. But you want as a practice to give that reassurance and that feeling of confidence to patients that, hey, this is a, if anywhere I can go, I have a confidence in Dr. So-and-so that his practice is going to be really safe. So for us, you know, I mean, the obvious things are waiting room is no more. You know, the waiting room does not exist. No patients enter the waiting room. They're going to be waiting in the cars. 
we have through telehealth a text messaging service so they can text us and virtually check in when they're actually in the parking lot. And when they come to the front door, they're going to be COVID screened, temperature check. They're going to have a mask on of their own. Obviously, our individual person is going to have a mask and appropriate PPE on there and then escort them directly into rooms as opposed to things like the hospitality station with coffee and water. And those things are gone. You know, they're not going to exist anymore. No more drinks. Uh, (laughs) No more drinks. No more complimentary snacks. You know, and then obviously the same procedures of cleaning and wiping down every surface in between, having multiple hand sanitizer stations throughout the practice so that people can clean themselves before they enter. And then in terms of the surgical practice, a lot of COVID testing is going to be going on. You know, people are going to have to be tested 72 hours prior to the procedure, and then they're going to have to self-quarantine prior to the procedure, and then certainly for a certain period afterwards as well. The surgical practice is not going to change as much as the non-surgical or med spa kind of practice. That's really where it's going to be because the social distancing is more difficult in those settings than it is in surgery. In surgery, you know, we operate on one patient at a time and they could be in recovery for an hour or so, but they're usually in there alone without other patients and it is already kind of isolated. So that's the interesting facet of it is that I think for practices that don't offer surgical services, it's going to be a rougher road because they're not going to be able to see the same volume that they had in the past and they're not going to be able to generate the revenue. Whereas at least with surgery, we probably pretty much can go back to this almost the same surgical volume without any risk to patients or staff. It sounds like you've thought about your protocols a lot. We've thought a little bit about it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about your book. You just finished your book. You probably might be wishing that you had waited until now to write it because you have so much free time. (laughs) But um, your book is called Don't Let Other People Make You Feel Bad About Looking Good, which is not your usual cosmetic surgery patient-facing book title. So tell me about the book. What is it about and what inspired you to write it? Well, I wrote Don't Feel Bad About Looking Good is because in my experience, you know, a book addresses a need or a problem, you know, and the problem that I felt for my patients and have encountered really since I've been in practice was a tremendous amount of kind of negative associations or guilt around plastic surgery, you know, and, and a few patients have kind of stuck in my mind over the years. You know, a woman, I had done a brow lift and a facelift and fat injections and quite a bit of surgery. And the grief that her family really put her through and said, mom, why did you do this? And really that was her biggest struggle was getting over the guilt and the, the kind of pain that her family associated with the procedure. And then on the flip side too, is having older patients who come in and are from a different generation and may not have the same perspective on facial rejuvenation that other people do. And they, they always feel guilty. They always seem to feel that they're being frivolous or, you know, why doctor, why am I so vain? Why do I, why do I do this stuff to myself? Why do I inject myself with needles and, and have surgeries and, and Are you things talking like about that? like the greatest generation types? Yeah. Yeah. Types, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, even in, even in the media, I mean, you see like people like, uh, you know, I've sworn off Sharon Osborne, I've sworn off plastic surgery. I, I, you know, I've broken this addiction. Like it's some kind of horrible addiction that needs to be broken. And, this, all this kind of negativity and fear around plastic surgery got me to think, well, what is their motivation? Why do they 
go to such great lengths to want to look good for others? And why is it so important to the human psyche to present yourself well? So it goes into the really the kind of the drive behind looking good. Why is it a biological drive? Why is it a sociological drive? What are the underpinnings of that motivation? What is that drive? And so it's kind of an answer to the question for people, you know, why they have that drive and why they shouldn't feel any guilt or remorse or shame over pursuing plastic surgery to look and feel their best at any age in their life. And they actually should feel empowered because they're, in a sense, making the most out of their life. Because how we look has such a bigger impact on our social interactions and our success and our relative enjoyment of life than you ever thought possible. And how these kind of physical traits translate and transmit emotion, they translate and transmit meaning. And so certain physical traits have these emotional connections that are part of our evolution in biology. And you can't deny them. And to deny them that some people are looking or judging you based on your appearance is kind of naive and a naive way to go throughout life. That's pretty much in a nutshell what the book's about. Do you see people hide treatments from their spouses because of this mentality? I've seen women do procedures when their husbands go on vacation. Absolutely. I've seen. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, that's a common booking. My husband's away on a business trip for two weeks. Uh, I mean, I want to book it then. Doesn't it look sort of obvious when he comes home and you're like... I, I can't imagine how they could hide something <laughs> like that. Or they'll tell them that they've done a laser when they've had really pretty much every facial plastic surgery procedure under the sun. So they've had their brows done, their upper and lower lids, facelift, fat injections, laser, every, everything all at once. But the, oh, I just had a laser and they kind of get away with it that way. I, I don't know how that works. The non-surgical foil. People have different relationships. <laughs> Far for me to understand how they could hide something like that, but they do. <laughs> That's funny. How have you seen social media kind of play into this and change the way people feel about having facial procedures? Just, I mean, the social media is not that old and you've been through before and after it. What are your impressions of how it's changed what people ask for and look for in facial plastic surgery? I think um, social media certainly has heightened people's visual feedback. And I mentioned that in the book. And that's, I think, the difference between you know, millennials and beyond is that you have that visual feedback from social media. So if you take a selfie with your lips pursed and your head cocked to the side and you get a certain number of likes, that kind of visual social feedback is immediate. Whereas if you had your lips injected and, you know, before the age of social media, you might get four or five different opinions. Now you put it on Instagram and you have 200 of your friends comment either positively or negatively. So that visual social feedback loop is much more prevalent in the younger generations. And they're seeing themselves in images in ways that we never did before. I mean, selfie didn't even exist 10 years ago. And now it's part of the vernacular. And every person from cradle to grave knows what the selfie is. And so people are seeing themselves. And then finally, the filtered aspect of it, you know, you can fiddle, filter, morph your image and People don't understand that a picture is just a, a digital information captured at one moment in time. It's not necessarily quote unquote reality. You know, lighting, shadows, the position of the head, you know, all those things influence what that image looks like. So you'll have people come in and now not bring a, a static 
portrait picture of themselves that's printed, they want to scroll through their phone and show me every image, every position, every tilt of the head. And I don't like my nose when I'm smiling. And so there's a lot more self-criticism as a result of seeing your image a lot more, but also a desire to look good in various positions and lighting and almost demand that that's the new standard in plastic surgery when it's almost impossible to achieve that kind of idealism in every angle lighting and et cetera. You mentioned imaging earlier. Is that one of the ways that you use to communicate with people about setting their expectations correctly? Yeah, imaging can be both a blessing and a curse. You know, I mean, you mentioned that I was around before social media and I also trained in the time where the imaging didn't even exist. So some of my predecessors were drawing on Polaroid pictures, the ink blotting out uh, the bump on the dorsal hump of the nose to show that was their imaging showing patients, you know, what their nose might look like after surgery. And some old timers still do that. (laughs) So I've seen it all from that to the evolution of 3D imaging that we're, we're able to do now. And I think it can be a blessing and a curse because if you use it as appropriately and not try to overimage or really give people something that is physically impossible to achieve, I think it can be a great communication tool because then people can understand, okay, well, this is a possibility. This is a natural result. This is what can be accomplished. And they don't have some kind of crazy image of a celebrity's nose or that's impossible to put on their face. So in that sense, it's a blessing. And a curse could be, though, for the surgeon that uses it unethically or inappropriately because the temptation for them might be to say, you know what, I'm going to give them smashing, great-looking imaging that's going to be incredible, that's not realistic or potentially achievable. And then those patients, of course, satisfaction is going to go way down when the the outcome doesn't match what you uh, potentially image for them. You seem to do a really good job with images in general. And I noticed you have hundreds of photos on your website and on your real self profile. A lot of people really struggle with getting patients to give permission for their before and after photos to be used. And so I'm curious how you approach that and if you have any secrets you can share with us around getting them to say yes. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's a very difficult position that you know the patient's in and you're in because you don't want to seem overly aggressive or asking when it comes to... ASCII, is that a word? No, not really. Uh, when it comes to- <laughs> no, it's not a word. <laughs> Let's just stick with overly aggressive. When it comes to asking them for the images, because it certainly is a, some, a private matter. So my staff know that that is a really our lifeblood of showing those positive outcomes because a picture says a thousand words. That is what is going to bring patients in your door. Before and after images and reviews are really critical to people shopping for you because that's really what they're going to kind of shuffle through. And when those images are superior and your reviews are superior, they're going to choose you. So we do everything we possibly can to remind people. We do give people options. So if you don't want your images shown on the web, will you agree at least to show it in office use so that we can you know, use it? For, and we frame it to people from the perspective of images, in a sense, That's what inspires people and gives people the confidence to overcome their fear of having a procedure. So in a way, you're kind of passing it on. And we say to them, do you remember when you came in for a consult and you were afraid and we showed you what people's results could be and that inspired you and gave you the confidence? And then people kind of feel like, hey, you know what? I had other people share that with their images with me, so I'm going to pass it on. We put it from that perspective. 
course, we preface all this with it's your absolute right, and we will one hundred percent ensure your privacy and your you know your right to not use the images in any, any way, shape, or form. So we start the conversation with that to give me the patient reassure them that unless they say yes, they're not going to be used. But the staff all ask them that question, you know, especially after their post-op visit when they're really happy and they're looking at the results and they're really kind of thrilled with them and we'll ask them at that point. And then if the staff's not successful, I will occasionally also give that perspective and say, you know, it really does help other patients to see before and after pictures and and we try our best. We certainly get turned down as much as the next practice does. And some people will just refuse and say no. But if you're not making a conscious effort to gather those before and after pictures, and the same thing comes with reviews, it's hard work. And you have to be dedicated toward constantly mining for those things. Yep. And you can't give up on that. And that's the difference between a practice that has a lot of them and doesn't. Is that, you know, despite the rejection from 10 patients that might say no to using before and after pictures, that one in 10 is going to build your portfolio. So you really have to not give up and make that part of your office protocol. You can teach the class on this. <laughs> can you sub for me while I'm out? <laughs> These are all the recommendations that we make, but it took me years to get them kind of into this nice package that you just delivered for us. <laughs> On this podcast, when we get to the end, we, we ask everyone the same question, and it's a little goofy, but everyone has a unique superpower, and I want to ask you what yours is. Mine is really research and implementation. You know, I will research what is the workaround, what is the best solution, what, is the, the, what are the possibilities for it, and then not only have five or six different options, but being able to really pick what works the best for the practice and then see it through. You know, I see a lot of practices go or, or practice managers go from one shiny object to the next. And I think sometimes that lack of seeing implementation from start to finish and creating a process for anything, whether it's a laser or a marketing strategy or your team, getting your team up to a level of performance or productivity that you need to is not seeing those things all the way, implementing them through the end. And for us, I think that's my superpower because I don't let things go. I'm very stubborn. If something's not working, I will persist and pursue and find the workaround in order to make it work the best I can. And if something's not worth working, recognizing that soon enough and, and throwing it out. You know, And I think that would be my superpower. If I was looking for a facial plastic surgeon, that's the kind of thing I would be looking for, someone who can take something from beginning all the way to the end and make sure that every step along the way is perfect. That's pretty important. Yeah. <laughs> I would think so. Good idea. I think, I think I agree with you on that one. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing your stories with us today. It was truly enlightening. I had a great time. Amy. Thank you so much. Oh, before we go, when does the book come out and where can we find it? The book's going to come out midsummer and it's available on Amazon. Great. We'll look for it. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Real Self University podcast. The mission of Real Self is to create a world where every investment in modern beauty is worth it. And Real Self University is here to help aesthetic professionals do just that. The mission of our podcast is to uncover stories and data from our industry's most interesting and successful personalities. If you'd like to be a guest on the Real Self University podcast, have feedback or questions, email university at realself.com. 
Support us and help us keep this effort going by subscribing to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like more information about becoming Real Self Verified, go to realself.com slash network and enter referral code podcast to receive 50% off your first full month of Real Self Spotlights. I'm your host and producer, Eva Shea. Our post-production is by Daniel Cruiser. All of our learning and practice development resources are available on demand at university.realself.com.